to open up to Matthew, <laughs> chapter 26. We are going to do an intro to the New Testament tonight. Kind of settings like we did a big picture study before we started the whole Bible. It's been about a year now, actually. Um, he thought it was going to be 39 weeks. But it's, uh, it's been about a year that we've been going through with the vacations and sickness and all that stuff. So it's been about a year that we started this, a year, about a year ago. And Lord willing, we'll start the New Testament now. But want to kind of set some things up, lay some principles. Because I, I know what happens. You turn the page after Malachi, and your Bible reads New Testament. And you think you're in the New Testament, because the Bible says New Testament. So we're going to talk about what that means, New Testament, and what do we need to know about the New Testament as we explore the New Testament of our Bible. So we know some things. We know some things very easily, and this is not anything. I didn't make a handout because not much to hand out, but obviously there's 20. That's a terrible color to use, and there's a terrible board to write on, so it's a perfect match. Uh, there are 27 books, and if you know anything about your Bible, 27 is 9 plus 9 that's nine. That's the number of fruit-bearing and fruitfulness in your Bible. You know, the Old Testament was 39 books, which is 13 three times, which is a number of a curse and judgment. Uh, so we got the number of fruitfulness. And as, as in all the Bible, there are three major divisions in the New Testament. Um, there are three major divisions. You've got your books of, your books of history. And I'm going to divide it this way because it's just easy. Just so you know, Theo can make as much noise as he wants. I am not bothered by it at all. You are. I know you're stressed out, but I am not stressed out. It doesn't bother me at all. Right? I'm good. All right? History, writings, and prophecy. Right? Most of your Bible breaks down that way. So your books of history is really Matthew to Acts. That's really historical things about Jesus Christ in the early church. Your writings or your Pauline epistles and your general epistles, and your book of prophecy is the book of Revelation. So that's a simple breakdown of it. But let's get into what is a testament, right? It's the New Testament. What is that? What is the New Testament? Well, let me read you Webster's definition, good old Noah, and then we'll see what the Bible says. A solemn, authentic instrument in writing by which a person declares his will as to the disposal of his estate and effects after his death. This is otherwise called a will. So we think of the last will and testament. The Bible talks about, the in 2 Corinthians 3.14, the Old Testament. Hebrews 9.15 calls it the First Testament. 2 Corinthians 3.6 talks about the New Testament. And Hebrews 7 calls it a better testament. So we have these two testaments. So anybody that says, oh, we don't need to rightly divide the Bible, you are smoking crack because your Bible has at least two divisions in it, right? It's got old and new. Everybody acknowledges old and new. So God has more than just two, but there's at least two. So we know the Bible is at least divided that much. So the Bible, uh, a new testament or a testament is like a will, right? And it's confirmed by blood. That's what makes a testament different than a covenant. A testament is always confirmed by blood. Let's look at the first four uses of New Testament in the Bible. And those first four uses all deal with blood confirming the testament. Go to Matthew 26, 28, where you should be. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, For this is my blood 
of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, right? The blood of the New Testament. He says, it's my blood. It's not the blood of bulls and goats anymore. It's my blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 24. Mark 14, verse 24. <clears throat> and he said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Again, Jesus Christ connecting his blood to the New Testament. Look at uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 20. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. <clears throat> Likewise, also the cup uh, after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So are you in? <laughs> I hope you're in, right? Are you washed in the blood? He says, This is the New Testament in my blood. One last one, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Verse number 25. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. So when we get to the Old Testament, and I'm going to erase this and hope that the whole thing doesn't fall over. All right, let me hold it. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. Okay. All right. In our Old Testament, we had the blood of bulls and goats. In the New Testament, we have the blood of the Lamb of God. The Testament is always confirmed by blood. A covenant is just an agreement. And there are many covenants in the Bible, right? The Edenic covenant, the um, uh, Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, um, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, right? We go through these covenants, and these are agreements that God made with man, or sometimes men make with each other. Now, the first covenant, a covenant does not require blood. For example, the first covenant mentioned in the Bible is the Noahic Covenant, Genesis 6.18. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah, and that covenant is not built upon or ratified by a blood sacrifice. God doesn't say, I'm not, I'm going to take you and Noah and let's kill a lamb or a sheep or an ox. He doesn't do that. So it's a little bit different. Um, if you get this, he'll help you understand it. A testament is a covenant, but a covenant, not every covenant's a testament. So every testament is a covenant of sorts. There's an agreement going on. But every covenant is not a testament because not every covenant is sealed with blood. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. This will clear things up for us a little bit. Hebrews chapter 9. Did that make sense? Okay. All right. Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse, let's turn, let's take it from verse 12. Hebrews 9, 12. The Lord says in Hebrews 9, 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, Old Testament, but by his own blood, New Testament, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So obviously this was, this was provisional and conditional 
and temporary. This was eternal and is eternal, right? So keep reading with me. Um, For if the blood of bulls and of goats, Old Testament, and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, Old Testament, sanctify it to the puring of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, New Testament, who through the eternal spirit, New Testament, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living of God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament, which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So a testament is a covenant that must be sealed by blood like a will. That life has to be over for that testament to be of effect. You might be in somebody's will, but you don't start collecting while that person is still breathing. Okay? They might like to. Some of the sharks sharks might circle the tank and wait till you kick the bucket to kind of get some of your stuff, but you don't get the stuff until the person's dead. Now notice in verse number 12, the blood of bulls and goats, they sanctified earthly things sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. The blood of Jesus Christ, heavenly things. All right? He purged the heavenly things. Moses is the mediator of the first testament. He says Moses was the mediator of the first testament. Christ is the mediator of the better testament, the new testament. When then does the testament begin doctrinally? I know you flipped your book over and right after Malachi it said New Testament. Let's look at... Can I preach it, Brian? Come on, man. I I know, I got to put my rhetorical sign on. You see why Theo doesn't bother me? All right, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. All right? No, you're right. I should have put my rhetorical. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Brian doesn't even need the Bible. It's written on his heart, right? For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So the benefits of the will are not distributed until the willmaker dies. Now, if that is true, the New Testament doctrinally does not begin until after the cross. So Matthew, Mark, Luke... And John, doctrinally, you're still in the Old Testament. I know what your Bible tabs say, New Testament. But I'm talking doctrinally. That's what some editor put on. They said, this is the New Testament of Jesus Christ. That's what some editor said. But doctrinally, God says the testament and the effect of those benefits does not happen until the testator dies. That means, I don't care what your Bible says right before Matthew 1.1, The New Testament, as far as God is concerned, does not begin until John 19.30, when he gives up the ghost. 
right? When Jesus Christ dies, then the New Testament goes into effect according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. You need to know that. Because when you flip it through your Bible, you know how people are getting saved in Matthew? The same way they got saved in Isaiah. They're still trying to keep the law. They're still trying to do good works. They're still being told to endure until the end. You flip through Luke, you know how they got saved in Luke? They got saved by being a good, Sabbath-keeping, pork-abstaining, bearded Jew. That's how they got saved in Old Testament sense. They're still doctrinally in the Old Testament until the death of the testator. If you get that, you just set yourself ahead of 99% of the Christian world who knows nothing about the Bible. They think, oh, it's the New Testament. Look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, we'll talk about it next week, has nothing to do with you or feeding the poor. It has to do with the constitution of a kingdom that's yet to come. So we'll get into that. So you got to get that in your mind. Just because the book says New Testament and you're in Matthew and Mark and Luke and even John... You're going to find things in there that talk about salvation by works, people facing hellfire, pluck out your eye if you want to enter eternal life. What's that all have to do with? That has to do with endurance. That has to do with faithfulness. That has to do with Old Testament salvation. Because doctrinally speaking, the Old Testament is still in effect until the testator dies on the cross. That all being said, let's talk about... Can you hand me that bag, please? Um, What precedes the New Testament? Let's go to Malachi chapter... Thank you, Pete. Thank you. That's one of the... Thank you. From now on, all questions are rhetorical, unless otherwise directed. That goes for you two at home. I know you're yelling out Old Testament. I know. This is not my Bible, but this is a study Bible that is really... It's probably good for junk, but I keep it around because it's got the Apocrypha in it. So when I drop it on the floor, I just know this is not a King James Bible, which means I don't even think it's a Bible. So this is actually the first Bible I ever read before I was saved for a class at NYU. We had to study it. It was a philosophy class, and we had to study it. So I have my notes from the class, and then when I got saved, I started reading this Bible because it's the only Bible I had. So you could see some of my early notes, like in the book of Genesis, where I was trying to figure out God. Uh, in pencil and stuff like that. So uh, I'm going to put this here, just so you don't think. I would never put my King James Bible on the floor, but this I would put on the floor. If I ran out of toilet paper, I'd use that. So that's about all it's good for. Uh, But anyway, rhetorical question. What's preceding the New Testament? Hey, don't, don't. (laughs) What goes on between the New Testament, between the Testaments? So let me erase this, and let's talk about very briefly the 400 silent years. Because you've got to understand, what is Jesus Christ walking into when he steps onto the scene in Matthew, which we'll look at a little more next week. So that period between the Testaments is called the 400 silent years. Not in the Bible, just somebody called them that. It doesn't ever say the 400 silent years. So, But that's just kind of like what it's been labeled. And it's been labeled that because God wasn't speaking to anyone. Now look at Malachi. Now how do we get that? Let's look at Malachi 4, 5. Malachi 4, 5. Look what God says at the end of the Old Testament. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. God is suggesting pretty strongly here that the next time you hear from me, it'll be from Elijah the prophet before I come. Make sense, right? He's, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before I show up. 
So Malachi 4.5, we got this promise of Elijah being the next spokesperson for God. Now go to Luke chapter 1. 400 years have passed. Jesus Christ is about to step out on the scene. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. This is about the birth of John the Baptist. And they say, the angel says, Gabriel says of the birth of John the Baptist, but the angel said unto him, meaning his father, Zacharias, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. Jump to verse 17. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. So 400 years after Malachi, John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. Meaning, John the Baptist is fulfilling the role of Elijah. And he shows up on the scene, and what does he say? Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now go to Matthew chapter 11. You say, but that's not Elijah. But he's in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And if you look at Matthew 11, he could have been Elijah. If Israel had received Jesus Christ, he would have taken the place of Elijah and fulfilled the promise of Malachi 4.5. Look at Matthew 11, verse number 13. Look what Jesus says here. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He says, guys... If you receive me, if you let me in, if you take me as your king, guess what? John the Baptist will have fulfilled the promise of Elijah before I came. So there's your 400-year gap broken up by John the Baptist who's in the place of Elijah. Now, when Jesus Christ comes again the second time, guess who's his forerunner? Elijah, Revelation 11. Elijah shows up with Moses and he's preaching. But the first coming could have been the second coming if they received him. That's a key to unlocking your Bible. God had everything in place for them to receive him the first time, and we would have gone into the millennium. He would have been a light to the Gentiles. I don't know how it all would have worked out, but God would have worked it out. But they rejected him, so God had Elijah coming back in the tribulation, and all that stuff's about to unfold. So what happened during those 400 silent years? I'll tell you a few things. Number one, the times of the Gentiles marched on. We had Persia, then Greece, then Rome come to power. Because they've come out of captivity. Babylonian captivity is over, and that's where they're in Malachi, right? Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, um, those prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they're out of Babylonian captivity now. Who are their leaders? Persia. So during that time of captivity, of that time of 400 silent years, we got Persia, Right? That's what you read about Darius. You got Greece. And you got Rome. And you got Rome in power before the first coming of Christ. Guess who's going to be in power before the second coming of Christ? It's Rome. Watch her. Keep your eyes on her. She's, she's quiet, but that harlot just stays dormant until she's ready to strike. Right? Rome, military power before Jesus Christ came the first time. 
Watch her be the spiritual and probably military power again before Jesus Christ comes a second time. You learn the patterns, you learn the Bible. You learn the patterns, you learn the Bible. You know what else rises up during this time? The synagogue form of worship rises during this time. The synagogue was not the temple. God instituted the temple. God never told anybody to build a synagogue. But they're there, and Jesus went into them, and Paul went into them, because they're all things to all men, and that's where the people were. But God never institutes the synagogues. They grow up in the silent years. They grow up when God isn't speaking to man anymore. And you know what the pattern was in the synagogue? Everybody just stands up and gives their own opinion. That's what happened in the synagogue. When God wasn't speaking, man's voices filled the silence. That's why when Jesus stood up in the synagogue, everybody's like, whoa, this guy speaks as one of, with authority and not as the scribes. Because everybody got up there and they just debated and discussed and shared their two cents on what the scripture meant and all that stuff. That is synagogue worship that grew up in the silence of God during the silent years. You know what else is what's, what's written in here? The Apocrypha is written during this time. Now, the Apocrypha, the word Apocrypha means hidden. Now, the Apocrypha, if you don't know what those are, are a set of books that are not Scripture. Some people accept them as Scripture. There's many books. I think there's like 13 or so of them. I forget. It would be great if it was 13. I'm not 100% sure. I forgot. I had the number before. But the King James translators included the Apocrypha between the Testaments to show that they didn't think it was Scripture, but it was historical literature, so they put it between the Testaments. The Roman Catholic Church includes the Apocrypha in the Old Testament. How many books are in... This is a real question. How many books are in your Old Testament? I said it already. 39. I said answer the question. I I said answer it, and everybody looked at me like a tree full of owls, just like... (laughs) I'm not going to answer any more questions. Pete's, Pete's glaring at me. He's like, oh, that's it. I'm done with you. I'm not answering any more. <laughs> no, 39 in the Old Testament. Not a Roman Catholic Bible. 46 in a Roman Catholic Bible. Have you not read the book of Tobias? Or the book of Judith? Or the book of Wisdom? Or the book of Ecclesiasticus? Not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus. Or the book of Barak? Or First and Second Maccabees? That's a real page turner. That's why you hold up your Bible. You say, no, it's 39 books. And they say, no, you don't have all the Bible. It's 46 books. Well, why should we reject? I'm going to give you seven reasons why the King James translators rejected the Apocrypha of Scripture. That will be good for you and I to reject the Apocrypha of Scripture. And I don't have them in a neat handout, so I'll go slow, or you can listen to the recording. But um, first reason, number one, they were not written in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is written in the Hebrew language. There's some parts of Daniel written in Aramaic. I know. Thank you, Bible scholar. But it's predominantly Hebrew. That was God's language. In the New Testament, it's primarily written in Greek. Right? They they rejected this book. They rejected the Apocrypha because it was not written in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. Number two, not one writer claims inspiration. You read through Isaiah, thus saith the Lord. You read through Jeremiah, thus saith the Lord. You read through all these people, David says, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me. 
right? They're always claiming inspiration. The, uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. They're claiming inspiration, these authors of true scripture. Not these guys. None of them claimed inspiration. Number three, none of these books are ever acknowledged by Jesus Christ or the early Jewish church. So Jesus Christ sets the canon. He tells you from the blood of Abel unto Zechariah, which is Genesis to Second Chronicles. He says, that's your Old Testament, guys. That's what Jesus said. He never acknowledges, you know, Bell and the dragon. <laughs> he doesn't acknowledge, you know, Maccabees. And the early church, Peter, James, and John, and those early Jewish Christians uh, in the early church in the book of Acts, they never reference, talk about these books of the Apocrypha. Number four, they contradict themselves. The books contradict themselves. And they're not like supposed contradictions in your Bible that all resolve. No, I'll give you one. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one. This is a good one. Um, in Maccabees, there's a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. You're having a realization, right, an epiphany? Antiochus Epiphanes. That was a bad English joke. Uh, I'm the only one that got it. Antiochus Epiphanes was a king of the Greek Empire. Wicked king. Wicked, wicked king. The Maccabees fought against him. In the Maccabees, Antiochus Epiphanes dies three different ways in three different places. That's not a good contradiction. Uh, let me see. I'll tell you. Right? First way. I got them written down here. First... In 1 Maccabees 6, he's cursed by the Jews with grief and dies of grief. In 2 Maccabees, he's stoned, decapitated, and cut in pieces. And in 2 Maccabees, God gives him incurable diarrhea. I wish I was joking. You want, you want to hear that. I know you want to hear that. 2 Maccabees 9.5. You see, when you fake it, God always makes you sound ridiculous. You know in the Hadith, which is the writings and the sayings of Muhammad, he says that if you, if you fart while you're praying, demons enter into you. Like it's in the Hadith. Like only somebody possessed with demons would write something like that and call it scripture. But anyway, 2 Maccabees 9.5 says, But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, dealt him a fatal invisible blow. No sooner had he uttered the words than he was seized with incurable pains in his bowels and acute internal suffering. And he goes on talking about his bowels killing him, right? So, amen, preach that, all right? Don't think anybody's preaching that on Sunday morning, all right? What am I up to, number six? Not written in Hebrew, not one writer claims inspiration, not acknowledged as scripture by the Lord. Oh, number four, I didn't say this one. This would be number five. Never allowed among the sacred writings during the first four centuries of the church. The first four centuries of the church never included the Apocrypha among Holy Writ, among Scripture, as far as they considered it. Now I'm up to six, right? The Apocrypha promotes doctrines that contradict the rest of the Bible, such as prayers for the dead and sinless perfection. You say, where does that Catholic Church get praying to dead saints? The Apocrypha. It's in their Old Testament. Second Maccabees. I had to put little things in here because I don't know where. I didn't know Second Maccabees from First Tobith. I don't know any of this stuff. But in Second Maccabees twelve forty four, just so you think I'm not lying to you, 
The Bible says, had he, the Bible says, this book says, had he not been expecting the fallen to rise again, it would have been superfluous and senseless to pray for the dead. So he's like, I'm praying for the dead because I think these guys are going to rise again. So it, it comes out of something. It comes out of false scripture. Um, and number seven, it teaches immoral practices such as lying, Suicide, assassination, and magical incantation. I'll say that again. It teaches immoral practices such as lying, suicide, assassination, and magical incantation. This is Tobias chapter 6, verse 5. Tobias... Tobias split the fish open and put its gall, heart, and liver on one side. He broiled and ate part of the fish, the rest he salted and kept. They continued the journey together, and when they came near to Medea, the youth asked the angel, Azarias, my friend, what remedy is there in the fish's heart and liver and in its gall? He replied, You can use the heart and liver as a fumigation for any man or woman attacked by a demon or evil spirit. The attack will cease and it will give no further trouble. So that's an angel telling a dude, hey, why, why do you want to eat that fish? Because it will ward off evil spirits. It might ward off your next date, but it's not going to ward off evil spirits. All right? So that is some of the silliness in the, in the Apocrypha, why we reject it. So that's what's going on during the silent years. We got some weird worship going on. We got some wicked leaders in power. And we got some crazy writings being circulated. Now, there's historical accuracy in there. The Maccabees were freedom fighters, and they stood for Israel, and they loved their nation. So there's some things to glean from the the historical aspects of the Apocrypha, but there's nothing doctrinal for your soul. That's why God didn't include it in his Bible. All right? My last point. Don't answer out loud. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. What is the New Testament really all about? All right? like Charlie Brown on stage. Can somebody tell me what Christmas is all about? Well, this is what the New Testament is all about before we even dive into it. So now you'll know what you're looking for. To answer that question, what the New Testament is all about, let's revisit a question we asked a year ago. Rhetorically, of course. What is the Bible all about? The theme of the Bible is the king and his kingdom. That's what the Bible's about. I'm glad you got in on it. But it's about... Let's see if I can grab it with my fingers here. There we go. There we go. Let's get it like this. This way you can see it. Humble yourselves a little bit here. Right? This much of the Bible is to the church. Right? That's it. And of that, maybe this much really lays out how you get saved. So, the Bible's got a lot of stuff about you and for you, but the Bible, you're not the main focus. The focus of the Bible is the king and his kingdom. Now remember, that kingdom has two aspects. It's all about the kingdom. There are two aspects to that kingdom. 
There is something the Bible calls the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is a physical, literal, political kingdom with a Jewish king sitting on a Jewish throne and a Jewish capital in Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is an invisible, spiritual kingdom that lives inside the heart of the believer. Heaven is a place. The kingdom of heaven is about a physical kingdom that's going to reside in a physical place. God, the Bible says, is a spirit. So it's a spiritual kingdom that lives inside the heart of the believer. Genesis 1.26. Now, a little bit of backstory. The first Adam was given the keys and dominion over both kingdoms. Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image. That's your spiritual. And... Our, our likeness. That's our physical. See, right from the jump, God is separating these things. He says, you're made in my image, that's my spiritual character, and you're made in my likeness, that's the physical shape. So Adam has got the spiritual attributes of God and the physical likeness of God, so he is a king over the kingdom of God, spiritual, and the physical kingdom of heaven. It goes on in verse 28. I'll continue, because some of you don't believe me. 28. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Spiritual. Bring forth more sons of God to to inhabit my spiritual kingdom. Bring forth some more righteous sons of God that could be citizens in my kingdom. That's the righteousness of the kingdom of God. I want some more righteous sons. Be fruitful and multiply. That's a spiritual blessing. And then what does he say next? And have dominion over the fish and the sea and all that stuff. That, right? This is my be fruitful. And here's your dominion. We got them right there at the beginning. Now, go to Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. When Adam sinned against God, the kingdom of God was gone. When Adam sins, the kingdom of God is gone. They were naked. They lost the glory that covered them. The image that they had, that was their covering, is gone. you got to get that. That image is lost until the image of God, who is Jesus Christ, shows up in the book of Matthew. Jesus Christ is called the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.6, Hebrews 1.3, Colossians, I think, 1.15. He's the image of God. He's gone. The image is gone until He comes back. So when they sin... They sin, right? The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Romans 14, 23. When they sin and sin enters into them, they are no longer righteous and that kingdom of God is gone. 
And that image is gone until that image returns to be imputed unto man by faith in Jesus Christ. You got that? That means you got to get this like a hole in the head. No, you, you got to get this. That was the wrong expression. You really got to get this. Nobody was born again in the Old Testament. Nobody's sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13, in the Old Testament. Nobody is spiritually circumcised in the Old Testament. Nobody is put into the body of Christ in the Old Testament. You say, but I thought they got saved by looking forward to the cross, and we, look saved, we get saved by looking backward to the cross. That's a nice saying. There's just one problem. It's not biblical. Right? They didn't know what the cross was. When Jesus talked about the cross and dying, the apostles were like, do you want to ask him? I don't know what that means. You want to you know what that means? They don't know what that means. The, the tomb is empty. They still don't know what it means. Not until later do they start to understand what it means. And not until Paul is given to the revelation of the mystery of the body of Christ do anybody really understand what God was doing. So nobody's born again. Isaiah is not born again. Jeremiah is not in the body of Christ. Moses is not in the body of Christ. Um, uh, Josiah was not spiritually circumcised. All right, uh, Malachi and Esther, we're not sealed with the Holy Spirit like you are. What is happening right now in this little thing called the church is a unique operation of God in God's plan. And when God finishes this thing called the church, he's going to suck us out of here, zap us out of here. Oh, he's going to get us out of here. Come tonight, Lord, get us out of here. And you know what? He's going to just resume what he had going on beforehand. We're a little pause, but you know what happens? We think the way it is is the way it always was and always will be. That's what we think. But it wasn't this way before, and it won't be this way after us. You've got to get that. That'll help you understand your Bible and avoid false doctrine. Nobody's born again. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, Adam is the only man called the Son of God or a Son of God in the Old Testament. The only sons of God mentioned in the Old Testament are angels and Adam. And that's a lesson for another day. But we'll just say, Adam was the only man in the Old Testament. Now, you're a son of God. <laughs> John chapter 1, As many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Have you believed on the name of Jesus Christ? Amen. All right, now you can respond. Now you can respond. Have you believed on the name of Jesus Christ? Amen. All right, don't mock me, Pete. All right, but that... <laughs> you used to get heckled. I'm heckling you now. Right? But anyway... Uh, there's no sons of God in the Old Testament. No man, I should say, is called a son of God in the Old Testament. You know why Adam was called a son of God in the Old Testament? Go to Genesis chapter 5. Because Adam had the image. Adam was born and made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. But that image is lost. So in Genesis 5, 3, Adam starts having kids... In his own image, the fallen image of a spiritual creature that is now separated from God. It's a difference. It's a big change. Now, that's what happens to the kingdom of God. Now, go to Jeremiah chapter 22. I'm almost done, believe it or not. Jeremiah 22. Now, the kingdom of heaven does not disappear. The kingdom of heaven does not disappear. The kingdom of heaven continues after Adam until Israel's sin gets so bad that God cuts them off at Jeconiah. 
So this kingdom continues, as far as God is concerned, until Jeconiah. Jeconiah is God's last king. I know there were kings after Jeconiah, but God, they were not kings that God established. God, in his mind, cuts and stops the political kingdom at Jeconiah. He says, that's it. I'm done with these kings. Now, there's other kings after Jeconiah that sat on the throne and exercised power. It's just like when Jesus died on the cross, right? The veil was rent in twain. You know what the the Pharisees and the Sadducees did? They sewed it back up, and they went right back to their sacrifices. But as far as God is concerned, the kings are done at Jeconiah. Jeremiah 22 says it. 28. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? That's another name for Jeconiah. You know what's missing? The prefix, Jah, which means God. You know what God's calling him now? Coniah. He's even taking his name out of Jeconiah. He's saying, is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? They're getting ready to head into Babylon. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper. In his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Go to Lamentations chapter 5. Lamentations 5. Next book over after Jeremiah's Lamentations. Lamentations is after the final ransacking of Jerusalem. They've burnt the temple. They've burnt the city. The place is in ashes. And and Jeremiah is is lamenting and, and, and weeping. And lamenting, and he says at the end of Lamentations 5.16, look what he says. The crown is fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. Not I have sinned, we have sinned. Our head. It's a corporate lament of a nation that has been cut off from God and their political prowess, power, they used to be the head, now they're the tail. Now they're going to be ruled and subjugated to Gentile dominion. What a change. Go to Ezekiel chapter 21. One more cross-reference. Ezekiel 21, verse 25. And thou profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come when iniquity shall have an end, Thus saith the Lord God, remove the diadem, that's the crown, right? And take off the crown. This shall not be the same, exalt him that is low and abase him that is high. He says, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. So the kingdom of heaven gives way to the times of the Gentiles. God says, you're not getting another king until the right man comes to be king. That's Jesus Christ. The political kingdom is lost at Jeconiah. The kingdom of God is gone right in the garden. So how does that set the stage for the New Testament? The New Testament is God resuming His plan to establish both kingdoms. Because that's what the Bible is all about. It's about the king and his kingdom. So the last Adam, Jesus Christ, He shows up to usher in both kingdoms. He's the last Adam. Look at Matthew chapter 4. I'll show you what many people say is a contradiction in the Bible. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus is just coming out of the desert. He's coming out of the temptation. He's coming out of that stuff. And look what he's preaching about. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hey guys, the king is here. Your political kingdom is at your doorstep. Receive me, and all these things shall be added unto you. Right? What does it say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. And let's look at verse 14 and 15. Here's Jesus Christ preaching again at the beginning of his ministry. Mark 1, 14. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Which is it, Jesus? You told me in one spot in the beginning of your ministry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the other spot in the beginning of your ministry, you told me the kingdom of God is at hand. Which is it, Jesus? He goes, yes. Is the kingdom of God at hand or is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Yes. They're two kingdoms. He's offering them both because he's the last Adam. He's come to replace the first Adam who lost both kingdoms. Now he's going to restore both kingdoms because the Bible is all about a king and his kingdom. So he show, Now some people say, well, that means heaven and God are the same thing. That's pantheism. Heaven and God are not the same thing. Heaven is a place. God is a spirit. Right? I don't worship heaven. I worship God. But at one place, Jesus could say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm here to bring you. I'm going to break Roman rule. I'm going to give you that political kingdom. On the other hand, he could say, the kingdom of God is at hand because I'm here to bring in righteousness. And doesn't he say right smack dab in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. You don't get into the political kingdom without being righteous first. The Jews of Jesus' day, they wanted the politics and the land and the power without the righteousness and the holiness that comes with a holy God. So God said, nope, you lost it then, you're going to lose it again. You understand that? You don't get the... That's a good message, right, brother? We could preach that. You don't get the blessing without the righteousness. You don't get, you don't get to go to heaven without righteousness. Riches profit not in the day of judgment, in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. You know what Jesus Christ gave you when you got saved? The gift of righteousness. He deemed you righteous and imputed His righteousness unto you. Why? So you could go to a place called heaven. And when the Jews who get to inherit the earth want to have, when they want it to be on earth as it is in heaven... Because that's what the kingdom of heaven is. It's the rule of heaven on earth. If they want that, they need righteousness. And the Jews didn't want righteousness. They just wanted the stuff. So they lost the stuff because they didn't want the righteousness. But Jesus told them, if you'll seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if you'll go after righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. That's not a devotional verse. That's a doctrinal promise. He's telling you, you follow righteousness and I'll give you the kingdom, guys. They're not the same kingdom, but they have the same king. All right? Now, here's what happens. You know what happens. When Israel rejects the king, 
the kingdom of heaven, it's almost like the flip side. When Israel rejects the king, the kingdom of heaven goes into mystery form. We'll talk about this more next week, but Matthew chapter 12 is a pivotal chapter. That's when the king is rejected. You know what happens in Matthew chapter 13? The, king, the, the kingdom goes into parable form. It becomes hard to be understood, mysterious. Because when they reject the king, the kingdom becomes a mystery to them. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about anymore. The kingdom of heaven is only found in the book of Matthew. You know, it's the only place in your Bible that's talked about is the book of Matthew. Because the book of Matthew is about the king, Jesus Christ, the king, the lion, the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king. That's why it talks about the kingdom of heaven here only. But once they reject the king, that's it. It's, it's in mystery form. The kingdom of heaven does not return until the king returns at the second advent. That's when the kingdom of heaven comes back. Right now, we're in the times of the Gentiles, the church age. We are not in any kind. Some people are trying to build a kingdom. <laughs> they think they're trying to just get stuff and build a kingdom and churches get sucked up into that. We're not building a kingdom down here. We're not trying to amass property and land. I mean, nice to... Tonight would be one of those nights where it would be nice to have your own place. I, I, I will have to grant you that. But you know, we're not, that's not our goal. That's not our first ministry. We're aiming for the heart, right? We're aiming for the souls of men. That's, that's our target. When Israel rejects Jesus Christ and His righteousness, you know what happens to the kingdom of God? It goes to the Gentiles. Look at Matthew chapter 21. I'll show you. There's a warning there about it. Matthew 21, look at 42. This is right on the heels of the parable of the householder in the vineyard, which is a rebuke to the leaders of Israel. And Jesus says in Matthew 21, 42, Jesus saith unto them, these are the leaders of Israel, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Jesus Christ warns the nation about losing the kingdom of God. And when Israel rejects Jesus Christ, this goes in parable form. And when they finally reject Jesus Christ entirely and, and Stephen is stoned, the kingdom of God starts turning to the Gentiles and given to some people that would bring forth the fruit that God wanted to see the spiritual fruit that he wanted to see. Romans chapter 14. Where is the kingdom of God? It's within you. Luke 17, Jesus says, it's within you. He says it doesn't come with observation. So just because somebody has a big building, a lot of property, that's not the kingdom of God. Now, God bless him if God gave it to him. Hallelujah, I'm happy for you. But that's not the kingdom of God. That's stuff. We're over here. Romans 14, 23. Uh, that's not what I want. I want Romans 14, 20. No, that's not what I want either. 17, thank you. Thank you for answering. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, stuff, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Paul never, Paul, the writer to the church, never mentions the kingdom of heaven, ever. All Paul talks about is the kingdom of God. 
fellow laborers for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not right, is not meat and drink. Paul talks about the kingdom of God because that's the spiritual kingdom that God is building today. That's what's going on. Israel rejected their Messiah. This kingdom gets put on hold and God turns this kingdom over to the Gentiles to bring forth fruit and that's what we're building right now. That's why I'm not after how you dress. I'm not after your bank account. We're after people's hearts and souls and minds. That's the target, right? We're after your heart because the kingdom of God is within you. Now, last thing, and then we'll be done. You have to be careful because now, you see how it's moving around? Jesus shows up. He offers them both. One goes into mystery form. Then the other one is moved to the Gentiles. There's all this like, it's here and it's not here. So you've got to be very careful about three books in your New Testament. There's three books that'll trip you up and break your neck more than anything else in your Bible. Three transition books where God is moving stuff around, responding to people's sin, you know, changing gears on folks. And those books are the book of Matthew, the book of Acts, and the book of Hebrews. These are three transitional books in your Bible. And you have to be careful about the transitions in the New Testament as the kingdoms are offered and then given to somebody else, etc. So how does this work? A side note. A lot of heresy is just the truth being spoken at the wrong time. Truth being spoken in the wrong dispensation. So what we got here in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, we're going from Gentile to Jew. We're going from captivity to kingdom, right? God's turning his attention back to Israel. They've been under the times of the Gentiles. They've been under Gentile dominion from Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, now Rome. And Jesus Christ shows up and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And God is that the people which sat in darkness have seen a great light. And God is turning their attention. He's bringing his attention back to the Jew, back to the kingdom, back to the nation. They get their shot. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 7. Peter stands up. Uh, sorry, Stephen stands up. They stone him. And God says, all right, I'm going to the Gentiles. And the book of Acts is another transition from Jew to Gentile. From kingdom to church. From there I say Peter to Paul. From kingdom of heaven to kingdom of God. In fact, I think the last verse of the book of Acts, if you want to flip over to Acts 28. All right, you want to just flip over there? Actually, no, hold two places. Go to Acts 1 and Acts 28. Go to the first chapter and last chapter of your, of your book of Acts. You better be careful with the book of Acts. You break your neck in the book of Acts because the doctrines are moving. Things are changing. It's in flux because it's based on what Israel is going to do. Acts 1, verse 9. You see the question? Oh, not Acts 1. Acts, uh, Acts 1, 6. 
When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? See, that's what they're thinking about. They're over here. They're like, hey, we're going to be the head and not the tail again? You know, we're going to have dominion again? We're going to bring David back up again and rule like he did before, right? That's the kingdom. Acts 1, Acts 28. Right? Paul's in jail. Acts 28, 31. He says, Paul's in jail and he's preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. By the end of the book of Acts, we're talking about the kingdom of God. In the beginning of the book of Acts, they're asking about the kingdom of heaven. At the end, Paul's preaching about the kingdom of God. First part of the book, it's Peter preaching about the kingdom of heaven. And at the end, it's Paul preaching about the kingdom of God. It's a transition. And then we go through Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And then, wham, we get Hebrews. And Hebrews is now a transition in the other direction. Now we're going to go Gentile back to Jew. From church back to nation. From kingdom of God back to kingdom of heaven. Right? None of us are Hebrews. Right? Except maybe Eli, but not anymore. He's, 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 he's one of us now. He's in the body. Right? 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 So, there's a transition back. You see it? We go from into Matthew, we come out of the times of the Gentiles and we get ready for the Jew and the kingdom. They reject it. Then God goes to the Gentiles and starts preaching the kingdom of God. Then when God takes the church out of here, right, he turns his attention back to the Hebrews and it's all about the Jew again. It's all about the nation again. It's all about the kingdom of heaven and getting the land and all those promises again. They're transitions. Gotta watch your, just watch your transitions book. Your transition books. You know when you... When you walk from one room to the next, let's say it's got wood in one part of the room and it's got tile in the other part of the room, they've got to put a little transition in there. Watch your step on those transitions because you might trip and fall. Right? And you've got to watch when you move in Matthew and Acts and Hebrews. Be aware that you're dealing with transition books going from Jew to Gentile, Gentile to Jew, and vice versa. And if you know that, you'll be safe and save yourself some pain. But if you show up in the book of Acts chapter 2 and somebody says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, you've got to push yourself, okay, where am I? Okay, I'm, this is very Jewish. If I find myself in the book of Ephesians talking about spiritually sealed, okay, now I know where I am. If I'm in the book of Hebrews and I'm talking about somebody losing salvation, somebody not making it, they don't endure, okay, I'm in a different dispensation here. You've got to understand where you are in God's timeline and these transition especially. But just remember this, a testament is a kind of promise, and God always keeps His promises. In the Old Testament, the promise of the kingdom was conditional, but in the New Testament, the promise of the kingdom becomes unconditional in Jesus Christ. He's bringing in the kingdom. It's whether or not you get in on it. So I hope you're getting in on it. If you're saved, you're in on it, but that's it. That's, that's what the New Testament's all about. A king showing up to restore the kingdoms to the world and establish his plan. So next week, God willing, we'll jump into the book of Matthew and start breaking down the books of the New Testament. Thank you for your attention and for being here tonight. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father.